Welcome to Talk Iran. This is Saman Askari. Today on the podcast, Irvand Abrahamian. One of the most renowned experts on Iranian history in the world, Irvand Abrahamian was born in Iran with Armenian origins. He was raised in England and obtained his bachelor's and master's degrees from Oxford University. He subsequently earned his PhD from Columbia University in New York. He currently teaches at the City University of New York, where he's a distinguished professor of history and politics at Baruch College. He has previously taught at Princeton, Oxford, and New York universities. The author of several books, mostly focusing on 20th century Iranian history, Professor Abrahamian was elected as a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and is also a member of the Middle East Studies Association of North America, the American Historical Association, and the International Iranian Studies Association. Since I've mostly focused on recent events on this podcast, the goal of my conversation with him was to put what is currently happening with Iran into a wider historical perspective. We start our conversation talking about the reasons for the success of the clerical establishment in bringing about the Islamic Revolution of 1979, and we also talk about the Persian identity versus the Shia identity, the similarities between Zoroastrianism and Shiism, the failure of democracy in Iran, foreign interference in Iranian affairs, the perseverance of the Islamic Republic in the face of various challenges, and finally, current events and the Trump administration's maximum pressure policy towards Iran. So without further ado, let's dive into my conversation with Professor Irvand Abrahamian. There were many factions that threatened the rule of Muhammad Reza Shah. Uh, there were the communists, the nationalists, and of course the clerical establishment. Why was it the clerical establishment that ultimately succeeded in overthrowing the monarchy? That's a very good question, and of course a lot of writing is uh, evolves around that question. A number of answers can be uh, offered. One is, of course, the organizational answer, which is under the Shah from 1953 onwards, secular, uh, whether they're socialist or nationalist organizations, were systematically dismantled. So there was no really room for any either reformist or revolutionary or secular uh, liberal organization to function. While, of course, you, it was very impossible for the regime to get rid of the mosques. Mm. Uh, they're basically part of society. And as long as mosques were there and the clerical network was there, that meant someone from the clergy... Uh, eventually Khomeini could step in and become the voice of these clerics. Uh, many of the clerics actually for a long time were apolitical, but in the crisis uh, they gravitated towards uh, Khomeini rather than other clerical leaders who were uh, more, uh, we can say, moderate or even conservative. So that's one answer. Another answer I think is uh, intellectually more interesting is you find in the 1960s, early 70s, uh, there is an intellectual change in the atmosphere. 
before it was the mood was very, the, to use a modern language, the discourse was either secular nationalist or uh, socialist. But you get in the 19, late 60s, early 70s, notion of return to roots. Uh, and of course, the prominent figure here is Dr. Shariati. Mm -hmm. And although he's radical, his, uh, the idea of turning to roots is a way of rejection of Western notions of nationalism and socialism. And it's not only him. In fact, you even get the monarchists, people around the court, uh, use begin to use this discourse as a way of under, undermining actually the nationalists and the socialists. They talk about return to roots. Their roots are, of course, 2,500 years of monarchy. Shariatis right. uh, is return to his idea of Shia roots, which for him was a permanent revolution. And then you also get people, uh, followers of Heidegger from fascist Germany who are talking about vague terms of, you know, against the West, uh, against Westification, and against some notion that somehow Iranian culture was better than Western culture, and why should Iran then turn to the West for a model? So these all these uh, tendencies of turning to roots developed into what would be considered uh, a return to very much uh, Shia roots rather than monarchist roots or even some sort of a, a secular roots. Mm -hmm. um, this partly explains, I think, the intellectual turn there. So as you know, Iran is sort of caught in between these two identities, as you just described, the Persian identity that goes back 2,500 years and the Islamic Shia identity. In fact, many in the West have argued that the current establishment, the Islamic Republic, is sort of anti-Iranian or anti-Persian. Is the Islamic Republic a system that provides continuity within the Iranian historical narrative or is it an anomaly of sorts? Because at the least it displaced the monarchy, which had been so persistent as a system of government in Iranian history, that it seems to be something that doesn't quite fit in the bigger picture. How do you, how do you see that? I think often in Iran, there's a false dichotomy that you're either Iranian or Islamic. So it's a sort of a false choice. The fact is most people have various sentiments it could be also both a patriotic sentiment, also a religious sentiment. And the idea that one has to have be very consistent as a philosopher, having a very systematic system of thought, this is not often historically true in any country. In most countries, you have mixture of sort of sentiments, and they could even sometimes be contradictory. So in Iran, I think there is a very strong national culture, which is both Iranianism and also Shiism. When the Iranian revolution, the Islamic revolution occurred, you have people like, um, I would say, extremists saying, yeah, no, we're just purely Islamic, not Iranian. The Shah used old Iranian symbols as a way of undercutting Islam. But then you find the same people actually picking up uh, Iranian uh, history as a part of legitimizing the state. So 
I would say that the Islam of Iran, or especially Shia Islam, is a form of Iranian identity. Can you talk a little bit about that? Obviously, uh, Iranian Shiism in the way that it exists now has its roots in the Safavid era. Can you give us an idea of why this identity is so strong in the Iranian schema? Well, I think it predates the Safavids because what you find is often if you dig under the Shia symbolism and sentiments, uh, you discover Zoroastrianism. <laughs> so there is a lot of traditions from the past that have seeped into popular culture and they were there even before the Safavids. And the Safavids, in a way, used that as a way of strengthening Shiism. But it becomes, a, I would say, a merger of pre-Islamic Iranian identity into the new Iranian form of Islam, which is Shiism. So what are some of those parallels between Zoroastrianism and Shiism? Well, things such as uh, Muharram, it's obviously nowadays seen as very she, but that, that much of that symbolism of stories exists actually before uh, Shiism. It exists in Zoroastrianism. And it's not actually uh, confined to Iran. You find in, in Armenian culture the idea of martyrdom, a big battle where heroes are killed. Uh, this predates actually Imam uh, Hussein. It becomes basically a part of, uh, I would say, popular culture, even before the, either Christianity or uh, Islam came into the scene. So the Islamic Republic was in a way supposed to be more democratic. Was the Islamic Revolution sold to the Iranian people under false pretenses or did the Shia identity play a very major role in winning the people over? Well, there was a lot of, I think, uh, careful wording, especially by Khomeini. He was a master politician. So during the revolution, he never used the term velayat fari Okay, it was always about Islam. Uh, about anti-Shah, anti-imperialism. It was a sort of slogans that could bring almost everyone together mm -hmm. against the regime and against the United States. Uh, but his inner core of disciples, uh, people like Beheshti, Montazeri, they knew that uh, Khomeini's ideology was from his work with Ayatollah that he wanted not just a democracy or Islamic government. His interpretation of Islamic government was that the Moshtaheds, uh, the senior Moshtaheds, would have the ultimate power in the state. And this would, would be defined as a clerical state. So if he had gone to the public during the revolution and said that I want a Velayat of Paris, I don't think he would have united everyone behind him as he did. Mm. So this was carefully kept quiet. It was on, and they talk much more about a republic like the Fifth Republic of France as the model. The first draft of the constitution was modeled on the French. A republic. So it was purely a representative democratic government. But after the revolution, when the assembly of Hebregon was uh, elected to 
really redraft the Constitution, that's where the real uh, card was shown. Beheshti Montazeri, the clerics, then talked about the real Islamic government would be one based on Velayat al-Fari. And if you were even a cleric and did not accept the notion of Velayat al-Fari, then you were basically pushed to the side like Shariat Madari was. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, in that way, you could say there was a transformation from a, a broad, basically, demand, vague demand about uh, is. Islamic government, which was defined as democratic, into a much more narrower, uh, exclusive form of government, which was a clerical government. But even in that clerical government, there had to be some um, room left for democracy. So you have a merger of a a sort of a inner core of democracy or representative government, but overall an umbrella of clerical rule. Uh, So it seems like a hybrid of uh, clericalism and uh, republicanism. When we look at Iranian history, there has always been a sort of desire to have popular representation. If we go back to the Constitutional Revolution, people wanted their voices to be heard. They, They wanted a more democratic system, why hasn't a sort of a um, um, democratic system in the way that we look at it in the West, a liberal democracy of sorts, ever been able to take hold in Iran? Um, And is there a reason that Iran may not be well suited for that kind of a system? Well, one could say that for any country that, you know, the modern uh, real democracy is a hard system to actually uh, implement and it leaves a lot to be desired and therefore people can often criticize it. So you could say, you know, most countries (laughs) have difficulty with real democracy and it's it's hard to find a real democracy anywhere. There's always some limitations. In the Iranian case, I think there's historical reasons in the past why it failed. Then there's specific reasons why 1979-80 failed. So in the past, you can say, uh, for instance, the Mashrutiyat, the Constitutional Revolution failed, mainly because once the constitutionalists got power, they discovered there was no real state if there is no government, central government, state, you really can't have a viable society. All you get is disintegration, local notables, tribal chiefs basically becoming rule unto themselves. Um, so that read, led to disillusionment in the 20s. And this led to, in fact, the rise of Reza Shah, because even a lot of the people who had fought for the constitution in 1905 by 1910-15, they were saying, you know, the, the country's a mess. We need to have a strong man on horseback to basically hold the country together and create a state. Mm-hmm. So that, in a way, explains the failure there. But after 1941, uh, where there was a state, there was actually, I think, between 1941-53, there was a real possibility of a viable democracy. Then you have foreign issues involved, especially the oil nationalization issue, then eventually the coup. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. which was again from outside. So it was outside intervention that stifled any possibility of a development of a, a constitutional parliamentary government. So that led from basically 1953 to 1979, no possibility. And then in 19, I think, uh, 79, 80, where again there was an opening up, a revolution, there was a possibility of a of a, a, a establishment of democracy. Mm-hmm. Now, then the question becomes why it failed in 79-80. A number of reasons. One is, again, the fear of outside intervention gave the clerics a sort of upper card. They could say the Americans are... Uh, are willing or eager to carry out another 53 coup. So we have to be strong. We have to be united. We can't have divisions. Uh, The public has to support our notion of Eliata Fahri. That was one way they actually sold the constitution to the public. It was in in the middle of the hostage crisis, the idea that the United States might invade or carry out a coup. U.S. didn't have that that power to do it, but there was this uh, real fear that that could happen. But also the thing I mentioned earlier, this uh, intellectual turn in the 60s, 70s uh, against uh, westernization meant that intellectually the younger generation were no longer thinking of a constitutionalism, liberal democracy, or even social democracy. They thought that return to roots, uh, whatever that meant, uh, would be the answer for Iran. Uh, so it was easier for the clerics to sell the notion of some things they considered indigenous rather than importing something from the West. So that was one argument, of course, Khomeini and the clerics used against Mossadegh supporters, the National Front, that they were basically contaminated with Western ideas, and therefore they were not really in tune with Iranian identity. So I want to uh, briefly focus on the influence, the foreign influence that you talked about. It seems like when we look at the 20th century, at every critical juncture in Iranian history, the actions of the British and the Americans and and Russians define the course of events. And as you just alluded to it, the Islamic Revolution was sort of a rejection or a denunciation of uh, foreign interference in Iranian affairs. And it sort of turned out that it made Iran into some kind of a pariah state. My question is, is Iran always have to sort of align itself with a global power uh, because it seems like it seems like if it rejects any kind of uh, alignment it, it becomes a pariah state because of its geopolitics because of its uh, natural resources well during the cold war uh, which you can say actually is really from 1919 till 1980s during that period um, countries, third world countries that wanted to be neutral, uh, neither uh, allied with the communist bloc nor the West, uh, they did have ability to maneuver and become neutral. And this is actually what uh, Mossad's solution would have been to 
keep independence. He called it negative equilibrium, but what it meant was that you don't give concessions to one side, because if you give concessions to one side, you have to give it to the other side, and that brings the, all the powers into Iranian politics, and you want to keep them out and keep, to keep independent. So that was one solution. But the Shah's notion was that you, the best to ally uh, with the West, and to do that, he uh, basically... Uh, exaggerated, uh, blew up the threat from America, uh, from uh, Soviet Union, uh, to build up the image that the Soviet Union was a big bad bear threatening to gobble up Iran, and therefore Iran needed the West to, to protect itself. I, I don't think he believed that, but this was a, a propaganda gambit that was constantly used the fear of uh, the Soviet Union. Now, after uh, I think the revolution, uh, Khomeini obviously did not want to pursue uh, the Shah's policy of alliance with the United States because the revolution was against the United States as well as against the Shah. Uh, so he again talks about neutralism. He, in a way, it's a continuation of Mossadegh's policy of being distant from both. He called it neither West nor East, but it's not very different from negative equilibrium. Uh, but the problem there was, of course, the U.S., especially with the end of the Cold War, uh, the, the U.S. now becomes uh, the, the determining power in the world. And therefore, uh, Iran is no longer has the ability to use the Soviet Union so much against uh, the United States to balance the two. So now the present problem of enigma for, United, uh, for Iran is that there is really no Cold War that it can try to maneuver. It is, uh, in a way, left alone against a big superpower, United States. Uh, and since so much of its ideology and the revolution was against the United States, it's very hard to discard that and say, well, uh, we'll put the past aside and we'll become friends with the United States. Even if the leaders wanted to do that, it would be very hard to do that politically. Um, so in a way, Iran at the moment is basically a victim of history. Uh, its hope is either somehow China or some other major power will come into the scene that then it could uh, use another major power against the United States. But that's not in the foreseeable future. So it, that makes Iran very vulnerable to present politics. Mm -hmm. So uh, the Islamic Republic has persevered through a lot of different sorts of events uh, in its history. And you've often talked about the perseverance and uh, the, the strength of the system itself. Can you talk a little bit more about the factors that contributed uh, to it being relatively strong uh, system? Because at every turn, it seems like there are a lot of de detractors and there are a lot of people that say now is the time that, that the regime will fall. You know, we've we've heard this throughout the 40 years, but uh, it seems like it, it keeps going. What are some of the factors that contribute to that? It's okay, almost as soon as the revolution succeeded, people were predicting its downfall. Right. Islamic. Uh, you, you go back in 19... Uh, March 1979, 
uh, a month after the revolution, people were saying, well, the clerics can't last because they've never ruled Iran before. It's too, too complex a country for a bunch of mullahs to do that. And every year there was some reason for it not uh, collapsing. But if you take a long-term long term view of it, there are a number of reasons why the system hasn't collapsed. One is, of course, the strong Iranian identity. So when Iraq invaded mm-hmm. Iran, even people who didn't like the uh, Islamic Republic hated the clerics. They still rallied around the flag to defend the country against foreign invasion. So as long as the Iranian identity was there, it very much consolidated, and the Islamic Republic was able to use that. Another factor is that Iran um, has a strong centralized state, and uh, you can uh, ironically thank Reza Shah for that. He did create a strong centralized state. And it's not a dysfunctional, it's not, it's not a, a collapsing state. It has ministries, it has uh, routinized uh, work, network, uh, people in the institutions have certain rights, they know procedures. Uh, to use a barbarian language, there is a rational bureaucracies in the country. And so you can see during the Iraqi war, in fact, the state was able to bring in uh, rationing uh, uh, scarce resources. There was a major economic crisis, but the state was able to weather that crisis. Because for neoliberals in America, the state is by definition bad. Uh, if you have a strong state, that's a weak society. Here, what you can see the exact opposite. The, uh, the strong state actually was able to protect the society. And um, however much you can complain against the Iranian state, it is a pretty well-functioning state, especially compared to neighboring states. So that brings me to uh, today's events. As you know, Iran is under increasing pressure from the United States. It just, uh, you know, Donald Trump came onto the scene. He withdrew from the Iran nuclear deal. Uh, Now additional sanctions are being instituted. How does all of this play into this perseverance that we talk about? The fact that the U.S. is now imposing these, these additional hardships, in a sense, is that going to just bring people together under the uh, Iranian identity, have them rally around the flag? Or is there a breaking point at which, you know, the regime no longer has credibility because it has continuously faced these challenges and it hasn't really resolved the, the major fundamental challenges that the, that the people of Iran face in terms of isolation and, and hardship? Well, the the thinking, I think, of the Trump administration is that if you put these economic hardships, the sanctions, the regime will collapse. Why? Because it's a weak state and it's an unpopular state. Okay, These are, I think, false premises because it's not a weak state and it's it's not a i would say it's not an illegitimate government it, it came to power through a legitimate revolution so the the, the premises of the thinking of the uh, trump administration is wrong false so when uh, instead of the system collapsing 
I think what the system will do, it will much more harden. It will clamp down on any opposition. It will use its state system to uh, distribute scarce resources, even return to uh, a rationing if necessary, like during the Iraqi war. It will hope for uh, le uh, leakages in the sanctions from China, Russia, Europe, India, and so on. If those don't happen, I don't think the regime will collapse. What it will do is it will up the stakes. It can always then actually try uh, causing as much trouble as it can for United States in Iraq, in Afghanistan, in Syria, Lebanon. And this will, in fact, then uh, tempt the United States to again up the stakes against Iran. Uh, Iran can also up the stakes by saying, well, the United States has already pulled out of the nuclear agreement. We no longer have to abide by the nuclear agreement. We can go into rapid enrichment, in which case, of course, the United States then would be tempted to unleash uh, bombing. And there's nothing that would unify the country than foreigners bombing Iran. I see. I don't think instead of actually breaking down the whole system, uh, actual war would consolidate the society. And this would be the natural, I think, way. I don't think Iran would be different from other societies. When uh, foreigners start bombing your cities, people tend to unify. Uh, Goebbels in World War II said the Germans were never unified, so unified as when the Americans and the British started bombing Berlin. So uh, I think the lessons of history showed that in a bombing situation, systems don't collapse. They tend to unify behind the state, even if you don't like the government. So it sounds like you're saying that if there's no uh, diplomatic path taken, uh, we're going to head towards the path of war. More than that, actually. There's no diplomatic path because if you read uh, what uh, Trump says and Pompeo say, they say, oh, willing to talk to the Iran, but they put all these conditions that are basically demands for unconditional surrender, basically saying Iran has to cease having any influence in Syria in Yemen, in Iraq, in Afghanistan, any problems that arise in the Middle East are due to Iran. And therefore, if there are any problems, Iran is responsible. So Iran is somehow supposed to solve all the problems of the Middle East before there's negotiations. It's not something that anyone in Tehran would accept as a reasonable opening for negotiations. So I, I think they've excluded that they, despite they say that, that they're willing to talk, they actually couple it with demands that uh, uh, closes the door for negotiations. So you think there would be no way for the um, Islamic Republic to be pressured into any kind of a negotiation at this point? If there was an opening, but I don't see any opening. Uh, as long as you, they blame uh, the crisis in Syria, uh, Yemen, Iraq, uh, to uh, link it to Iran, there's no way Iran can basically uh, settle all those problems and say, okay, I've done my responsibility, we can negotiate. Yeah. And also, also, I mean, 
the consistent demand have Iran all through the crisis under the Obama administration was that Iran had the right to enrich. Obama accepted that. This administration has taken away that right. They said that Iran doesn't have the right to enrich. So I don't see there's any way the Iranian regime could negotiate uh, with this administration. As you know, the various opposition groups have ratcheted up their rhetoric and activities, uh, namely the MEK and those who align themselves with Reza Pahlavi. In your assessment, these various opposition groups, do they necessarily have a way of actually making an impact or doing something within the country where, you know, there's some kind of a revolution or some kind of a major transformation where they have any kind of power or say in the future government of Iran? Well, I, I think actually the regime in Iran is strengthened when you have the Mojahedin allied with the Trump administration. Right. <laughs> I, I, even people who hate the regime, the last thing they would want is the Mojahedin uh, ruling their country. With the monarchists, there might be somewhat more complicated. There is some nostalgia for the old regime. And there's something like over 100 uh, internet networks now beaming towards Iran, uh, which are financed uh, predominantly actually by the Saudis that advocate uh, nostalgia for the old order. Um, so there, there's probably some, you can say, genuine look, harking back on the Pahlavi regime. But I don't think that's enough to bring back the old order. The only way the old order could be brought back is like uh, a foreign invasion of the country. Uh, like after the French Revolution, uh, other countries invade France and brought, restore the monarchy. <laughs> That's the only way I could see the monarchy restored in Iran was if like, there was a, uh, actually an American occupation of the country. Right. But Reza Pahlavi is not talking about bringing the monarchy back, right? He's talking about, uh, he's sort of forward looking. He's talking about a uh, republic or, or at best a constitutional monarchy. Uh, yes, of course, his father did the same in 1941, 42, 43. He was promised he wouldn't be like his father. He would be a constitutional monarchy. Interesting. All right. I think we, we've covered a lot of good ground here. I always ask for people to make predictions, but I know given history, it's not easy to make predictions. Uh, you talked about uh, potential war. Um, that would be horrible, obviously, for, for the various people that, are, that will be involved. But how do you see, um, what are some of the potential paths? How do you see things unfolding, let's say, within the next five years or so? I, th I think... I'd I mean, Iran's basically strategy now, and the Iranian foreign policy is actually made quite rationally. It's not made by the supreme leader. It's made by the National Security Council. So it's much more rational, I would say, than decisions made in Washington <laughs> in foreign policy. I think they generally the consensus is from the National Security Council is the best thing is to weather the Trump administration Basically, keep your cool. Uh, don't be tempted into rash action. Uh, 
this administration will either fall in Washington or be replaced next elections by something more uh, normal. And also hoping that there'll be enough seepage. Um, so that's their basically prediction. But if those don't work out, let's say if Trump is uh, in the November election comes back more stronger than he is, he is a re-elected second term. And the prospects of war, I think, are quite uh, significant. The, the, our attitude in America is often, of course, we don't like war. Uh, but having lived through the Iraqi war, I would uh, question that premise. Uh, uh, Iran Americans uh, may not like losing wars, but they, on the whole, like wars as themselves if they think they're going to win. Uh, and if they think Iran is very vulnerable to attack, uh, why not attack as they did with Iraq? The mess that is left is not at the expense of the United States. It's usually at the expense of the local populations. All right. Well, uh, let's hope for the best for the people of Iran and elsewhere. Uh, Professor, thank you so much. Uh, this was very illuminating. I really appreciate your time. Uh, look forward to hopefully being in touch. Thank you very much. Right. Thanks for listening. I hope you found that episode to be interesting and productive. Again, if you did, I would really appreciate it if you shared it on social media or told your friends and family about it. Uh, stay tuned for a lot more great guests coming up, and thanks and take care.